So many episode 1179, Charlie Grosso, founder of Hello Future. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. I think we mistaken having wealth buys you a lot of control over your days, your time, what you do with yourselves. Money buys you choices, which I'm not disputing at all. But if it's really choices that we want, is it about how much money that we're chasing? Right. Is it that payday that we're chasing or is it that we're just chasing the freedom to choose? Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Sharabi. I hope you're having a great start to your week. Thanks for joining me. Our guest today is Charlie Grosso, who has 20 years of experience as an entrepreneur. She founded her first business at the age of 20, and she went on to wear many hats, a modern-day Renaissance woman. She became a successful advertising photographer. She became a creative director. She's traveled the world over 80 countries working as a writer, Dr documentarian filmmaker. Today, she is the founder of Hello Future, which is the culmination of her lifelong passion for innovation and social justice. Hello Future helps to transform the refugee youth experience. It is a nonprofit organization that bridges the education gap for adolescent refugees with digital literacy and introductions to storytelling, media literacy, critical thinking, and even financial literacy. Charlie and I discuss how she arrived at her career decisions, never really having a definitive idea of who she wanted to be, and yet how she landed so many wonderful roles in her life. As an Asian American woman, how she navigated the expectations of her family and culture against her own pursuits, which didn't always align. And if you are somebody who is at a career inflection point, wondering what to do next, what is your next role? Charlie has a strategy that really helped her. It's less about knowing what you want to do, more about something else. I'll let her explain. Here's Charlie Grosso. Charlie Grosso, welcome to So Money and Happy New Year. This is airing in the new year. What's going on? Oh, uh, so flashing forward a little bit. Things are good. You know, we made it through 2020 intact and uh, we have lots of very exciting programming coming up for our Syrian refugee students. So we're really excited about that. Yes, I want to learn all about your latest venture and um, your philanthropy. Before we get to all of that exciting stuff, let's go back in time a little bit because you have such an incredible singular journey. I was reading about your beginnings and something that you have talked about is that uh, you didn't really have a definitive person that you wanted to be when you became an adult. Like that age-old question of like, what do you want to be when you grow up? It never really... It never really resonated with you. What was Charlie like as a kid? I remember being really little and telling my mom that I wanted to be an artist and being, you know, the typical Chinese mom. She's like, no, and she wouldn't elaborate on like, why? No. So I just thought that I needed to be more specific or I needed to find the right medium. So then, you know, every now and then I would go back to her and be like, I want to be a painter. I want to be a fashion designer. I want to be a writer and she would always be like no right what it, did it she was, want it was, you to be what did she want you to be 
<laughs> there's only three acceptable. jobs that's acceptable for an Asian child. You either be a doctor, a lawyer, or a banker. Was was she your biggest uphill battle to climb in terms of uh, getting the okay? When I was young, definitely. There's my dad too, but I spend more time with my mom, right? I think my mother's approval meant more than my dad's approval. And and their their approvals came in different ways, right? I would never go to my dad and be like, dad, this is what I want to be when I grow up. That just wouldn't be a conversation we had when I was a kid. I love that you didn't give up on yourself and that you ended up becoming this woman who would go on to be a photographer, an artist, a writer, a documentarian, a filmmaker. There probably will be a documentary about you as well. Today, the founder of Hello Future. One other question about like the in-between part. You, you had to start somewhere. And, and why did you choose photography? I believe that was your first. You had a business at 20. Was it photography or was, was there something even sooner than that? Yeah, it was photography. My first business was being uh, a photographer. And I, um, I started that business when I was still in college. I fell in love with photography at 18. And then I was doing it throughout college. And I went to a theater school. I, I ended up being a theater major, much to my parents' dismay. Really? Just, you know. <laughs> I, I lied to my parents the first two years. I told them I was a communications major. Uh-huh. That was a little bit more acceptable than being yes. a straight up theater major. And then and then I fessed up when it was too late to change my major. When did your parents start to really see you as a force to be reckoned with? I think probably in my 20s where, you know, I was starting to to just gain a name for myself as as an advertising photographer. You know, I was clearly making my living out of it. That was a milestone in which my parents can kind of glum onto, right? Mm-hmm. Even if they don't understand the work, they're like, well, she's supporting herself. Back in the days, I had a Wikipedia page on me. Uh-huh. I don't anymore. It, it got taken down in, you know, <laughs> in the bad annotation, you know, cleanse that Wikipedia does every now and then. They were, they were really impressed for some reason. They were like, oh my God, there's a Wikipedia page about you. Mm-hmm. What I really love about your narrative is in the way that you describe yourself and how you have been able to weave together all of these interests that you have pursued with a common thread. And that is that you see yourself as a storyteller. I think that's really inspirational for listeners who like you, maybe hearing this and thinking, I want to do all of these things. And yet I feel like I have to just pick a lane. But maybe the message is pick your story as opposed to figuring out what it is that thing that you want to do. What is the impact that you want to create in the world? What is that body of work? When you landed on that for yourself, that I, Charlie Grosso, am a storyteller, what was the process for sort of actualizing that or realizing that? Was it always clear to you that that was the mission? I don't know that it was always clear. It was always the thing that fascinated me the most and the thing that held my attention the longest. I was an avid reader when I was a kid. I still am today. And then as I grew older and as you know, media grew up with us, right, there's this interest in like the function of different media and how the form shifts a story and then how that influences the recipient on the other side, right? Mm -hmm. A long form narrative reporting piece lands very differently than a minute long TikTok video. They're so different. What's your favorite medium? Is it documentaries? Is it photography? Is it, I I dare say, TikTok? 
No, I've never done no. a TikTok video. Thank you. Um, yes. <laughs> and I was on a seminar. I was in a conversation with Amy Webb and she scared me so much. I deleted it from my phone. Yeah. What do you think about it? Like, tell us why you did that. Was it Amy Webb? Um, did she believe that we were all being monitored? Yes. She's like, Basically. I do have TikTok, but I downloaded it on a burner phone. And I was like, oh, I don't have a burner phone. So I think I should just delete this from my phone. Oh my gosh. That's what Apple needs to come out with next is just, you know, your spare burner phone. Let's move on, Charlie, because I do want everyone to learn about your latest impact that you're making in the world, which is Hello Future. What inspired you to start this organization um, helping Syrian refugees, young Syrian refugees? So it was the end of 2015. I was at a career inflection point. We closed our contemporary art gallery in New York City for good. My partner and I, we had a really fun five-year run, but it's not a great financial endeavor. And there was lots of things that I learned about the art world. Didn't feel like the space for me or what I really wanted to be spending my energy in. I was really fascinated with the refugee crisis. I've been really fascinated with the Middle East for a really long time. And in that moment of career inflection, I put out a couple of different criteria of what the next thing needed to do. It wasn't a monetary goal, which might have been foolish on my part. And so instead of saying I wanted to do this thing next, I said the next thing needs to do X, Y, and Z. It needs to check these boxes for me. It needed to be of service and create a positive impact. It needed to ask me to use all my skill sets, you know, and by then I was 38 probably. So, you know, a, a considerable diverse set of skills that I had in my bag. And I was really interested in how we can create more narrative diversity in both the ecosystem itself and also how can we teach those skills, if you will. Right. And especially in kind of the, you know, I, I grew up with the Internet there's still this belief that the internet could be the ultimate democratizing force. The barrier to entry is so low. You can really have a voice that was impossible pre-internet. But that also meant that you had to be able to tell a good story, a compelling story. So how can I teach what I know how to do in that space for others, for others whose voice that I think in the journalism space is a lot about witnessing, right? And then to tell stories that are untold, which I think are super important. But at the same time, the the narrator, the journalist is a filter. They have their own biases. Whomever carries the story, the publishing house, the, the newspaper, the platform has their own constraints and biases as well. Those stories in which we wish to represent as journalists, as storytellers, I think the effect is a little diluted. Right. And it's never as objective as we would like for them to be. And just so, to give people an understanding of what Hello Future does, it's essentially equipping these young individuals with a lot of the skills that we take for granted, things like how to use a search engine, frankly, or but more than that. This is where the this is where like where the kids are at. But you've like got digital skills, leadership skills, storytelling skills, problem solving, and then ultimately entrepreneurship, where there is an incubator and MBA program at the end of the curriculum. How do you find your talent? And I understand there's a long wait list. So we work in um, Arba refugee camp. So it's a refugee camp in northern Iraq in what's the region is known as um, Iraqi Kurdistan. It's, it's a complex set, set of, um, you know, 
Middle East geopolitics, but it's a it's a refugee camp hosting almost 10,000 Syrian refugees. And we've been working out of there since our initial pilot when the idea started and and we put it, you know, we put a program out in the field to test. I understand that you and the students actually went through a financial literacy program or course. How did that go? What, what were your expectations going in and, and what was the what were the results? It was such a fun class to teach for Noosh. They're teenagers, right? I'm not even really sure how much uh, U.S. teenagers right. understand financial literacy, yeah. right? And much less uh, refugee teens. And then there's other consideration like the fact that we had to really design a course for a population that's unbanked, right? So how did you do it? What were some of the ways that you brought this, that you drove this home for them? I think one of the things that always is apparent in teaching kids of all ages about money is that it is less about the quote unquote lesson plan or the you know def- defining terms. It's having them actually go through an experience. So every lesson is kind of split in two segments. There's a segment in which we teach them some basic financial terminologies, such as compound interest, even though being unbanked, the, mm-hmm. the idea of compound interest doesn't really apply, but right. we wanted them to understand that both in the in the savings idea um, and also in the borrowing idea and also the the pros and cons of their refugee status and leaving them unbanked. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's really important. And I think we're going to see changes on that front as um, you know technology has really democratized access to financial resources. But what, what what was the message you really wanted to drive home that that they are entitled, right, to having financial security and independence, hopefully? Absolutely. Right. Um, and that, you know, there's that there's less liability, for example. Right. Because mm-hmm. for those who are unbanked, they're pretty much, you know, keeping their savings under the mattress, if you right. will. There isn't even like kind of the joy of compound interest, right, that they can kind of passively earn. And then the second half of every lesson is a game, is a game we designed for them. It's really a personal budgeting game. So we researched like the top three possible jobs or common jobs, if you will, that refugee youth can have kind of within reach. They were weighted against if, say, for example, they they had a test score high enough to enter university, right? So one of the jobs was a library assistant. It's like mm-hmm. a 10, 15 hours a week. They didn't get paid that much money, but it's it's a pretty like low lift job, right? And then the other end of the extreme is that um, they can be a construction worker, a part-time construction worker. Of course, they made more money, but it's a very physically demanding job and certainly makes uh, pursuing education, a tertiary education at the same time, far more difficult. So we set up a multitude of these, uh, these kind of jobs scenarios, right? We let the kids choose like which imaginary job would you like to have? Then they're introduced to an Excel spreadsheet of, of, of just basic budgeting, income, expenses, here, the housing, the food costs, and then they get to budget and allocate what they do with their income. The funny thing that we saw first is that a lot of the kids would zero out their food budget um, yeah. because they're like, we don't have that much money, so we're just going to eat at home. Yes. I was like, well, that's not really realistic. Why don't we, you know, put a mandatory minimum on your food budget, right? Let's assume that we're functioning adults contributing to the household. So, Did any of them have the instinct to save first? That was part of what we wanted to test, right? We want to see if they, if they had an instinct to save, if we can start to build them into the instinct to saving. 
So first month, the kids are really excited that they have a job and they are paid and everybody wanted to spend money on um, on luxuries, right? The girls wanted to spend money on clothes. The boys wanted to spend money on like video games. It's almost funny how common it is that like the, the teen desires. And then what we would do, we didn't tell them was coming is that at the beginning of the next lesson, right? The month two of their budgeting, we would do a random lottery drawing and the kids would either be met with good fortune or bad fortune, unexpectedness. So a good fortune activity would be, say, they picked up an extra shift, right? And they made an extra $25 or someone in their family had an accident and there's an unexpected expenses of $50. So the game itself had these moments that are designed to help them essentially anticipate the unexpected, right? What do you do with your extra money? And then what do you do when emergencies came up and you didn't have money for it? How do you reallocate your budget that way? What do you think they walked away with and that they are going to necessarily implement now in their thinking and their planning for their future? At the end of our digital literacy course, we saw an increase in confidence in our youth go up to 58%. There's a 58% increase in their sense of confidence. After the financial literacy course, that 58% went up to 67%. So a nearly 10% increase from one program to the other. You know, again, I think that speaks to the power of financial literacy, right? That sense of, oh, okay, I understand how money works and I understand how to manage my own money. What do you think is the level of literacy that they are exposed to on the home front? So we we had talked about that as well, right? Some of our classes, some of our lessons were about the the feelings, the, the complex feelings we as individuals and as a family and culture have around money. A lot of the teens, especially the older teens, they say that the parents are starting to bring them in into the family conversation about money management, but that all of them, you know, agree the the terminologies and ideas and some of the management ideas that we taught in our class weren't ones that their parents had. What has this latest endeavor for you, what has been the most gratifying piece of it? You're still young. So what is like the next chapter, do you think? Have you already started to think about how to parlay this into your next into your next role? I haven't thought about how it parlays into my next role. I've been thinking a lot about like what's that next set of my life is going to be like. I really love the nonprofit work. I love working with our students. I love designing programs. Those were those were really unexpected winnings. I just didn't anticipate when I started this project. And then the project grew into a nonprofit organization, which I never imagined I would be leading a, an educational nonprofit. You know, I started <laughs> out, I, I wanted to be an artist, but surprisingly, it this endeavor has met all those criteria I set out five years ago. It, it checked all those boxes. It just took a form that was really unexpected. I think what I've always wanted to be is to be free. I wanted to have the freedom to create and to like put my thoughts and whatever creation is out there, right? This is just uh, an art project, if you will, that took a really different form, which is impact is um, is demonstratively clear rather than, than a written piece or a photography series or um, a film, right? We get to see the kids and we see how they react to the content. We get to see their learnings and we get to see their growth. 
we get to see them becoming more confident and then having, you know, tangible skills that we know will help them in, um, in their journeys. Yeah. You're seeing the entire process, the entire experience. I love what you said about when you were thinking about your next endeavor, which was right before Hello Future, you thought, what is the impact that I want to make? Or this is the impact that I want to make. And these are the ways that I want to integrate all my skills. And then you sort of got warmer to what is that next step? You speak regularly on helping people achieve non-linear career paths. What is some advice that you may have, especially in this weird economy that we're in? In some ways, it's like an exceptional time to start a business. And there are people that are still getting hired. And yet, you know, unemployment is still such a big problem. So in the context of today's world, maybe not so much when you were first starting, but for today, what's your advice if you were speaking to a room full of young people or even mid-career people who want to transition? to pursue that thing that they've always wanted to pursue or those six things rather that they've always wanted to pursue and, and how to go about it. I think the biggest piece of advice I have is to divorce your sense of identity from what you do for a living. So much of us do, right? I identify myself as a photographer. I identify myself as a nonprofit leader. But when those things don't work out, it's body blows you're taking. When you get rejection letters from editors, when you don't land that client, right? It's body blows after body blows. And that hurts. It's hard to recover from. But if everything is just, if I am not what I do, then what I do can be a little bit freer, can be a little bit more experimental. It can have less strings attached to it. I think that there's still a part of it, though, that I think people struggle with. There's a component, a very real component to what you pursue. There has to be like a financial, whatever you want to call it, a reward, a compensation. Um, You want to feel valued. It's not just the title that goes away or the title that you're so attached to. It could be the the lifestyle that the career has afforded you. Um, Like speaking very tactically, like how do people pursue that, which is so great what you're describing and still be responsible and realistic about managing their needs and and making money. How have you done it? So in the beginning, when, when I started my photography business, I had a track record already before I got into advertising. And, and those, those were definitely lucky breaks that I caught super young. I was doing headshots. I went to an acting school. I had a, I had a bunch of ready clients who needed the service in which I had to provide. So I cut my teeth in the very beginning of my business, just doing headshots for my friends. That wasn't what I really wanted to do, but it provided a baseline, right? It let me hone out a lot of the the business and minutiae that needed to be figured out when you're starting out. It, it gave me an opportunity to do client interaction that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And I would say that for my entire career, there's always been something that I figured out that supplemented my livelihood, whether it be it we did design work on the side, whether it be it we provided consulting services on the side. Even now, like I do some photography work still to underwrite what it takes to do this nonprofit work. We're just not that big yet to afford me a decent salary. So um, have a money job <laughs> is what I'm hearing. Have have a part of your efforts, time. You need a baseline, like you said, like a go-to skill that you can monetize well and often to support what will hopefully be the majority of your time spent on 
the thing that actually is maybe more meaningful to you or is going to leave a bigger impact in, in the way that you want. Absolutely. And I think that frees you up. It frees you up from needing the thing to be a home run all the time, right? Mm -hmm. It frees you up to take more risks. And if you write your baseline to understand that, like who I am is not to be the CEO of X, right? Or who I am is not predicated on making a million dollars a year, but just that like, I want a good life. I want a good life in which affords me a lot of freedom. That rewrites the narrative and what kind of actions you take and how you plot forward. I'd love to hear more about how you define your good life, Charlie. You already mentioned the oh-so-important aspect of feeling free, which I think is we can't bring that up enough in reminding people that money and your choice of your path in life, that all affords you your sense of individuality, your options, your freedom. But what else in your world defines a good life? And how did you realize that? Because I feel like it's not something you just, it just doesn't just appear. <laughs> you, know? you have to learn things. Yeah. Um, I thought a lot about like what constitutes a good day for me. What does that look like? I'm not great in the morning. So I like a slow start. I like a slow start in the morning and I can either do like a four hour sprint up top and then take a big break and then rev it up again in the evening, like around post dinner where I can get really creative or the reverse where like, it's just a solid, like six hour day in which it's, it's a lot of go, go, go until we're done. But then by dinner time, I'm kind of pooped out. And then those other times I can like kind of dictate my rhythm and how I wanted it to be. I think we mistaken having wealth buys you a lot of control over your days, your time, what you do with yourselves. Money buys you choices, which I'm not disputing at all. But if it's really choices that we want, is it about how much money that we're chasing? Right. Is it that payday that we're chasing or is it that we're just chasing the freedom to choose? Hmm. Right. So if you look at the people who downsize their homes and, you know, kind of went all in for, you know, van life or um, tiny home living kind of situation, that's about choices. Right. By downsizing, they they free them up to have more power and more choices over what they do with themselves, because suddenly their mortgage is a fraction of what it used to be. Yes. Right. I really, Yeah, that's that's important differentiation, because otherwise, if we're just saying the more money you have, the more control you have. And then it's like, well, I want all the control, so I should have all the money. But there is a point where you have to really understand what are the trade-offs that you're willing to make. It's not about always, like to your point, chasing the money, but realizing what is that lifestyle that would make me feel whole that wouldn't necessarily require millions and millions of dollars, that you can still have choice even with your relative piece of wealth. Absolutely. And and I think that that can be hyper-personalized, right? Mm -hmm. And once you realize the difference between what money gives you versus what you're ultimately wanting, that just frees up the mind to do a lot of different things and to make different choices and to make different decisions. But I will say like I'm making definitely different financial decisions now at 42 versus, you know, 22. How so? What have you learned? What's your, been your biggest uh, d two decades long lesson? For Hello Future, we have a financial literacy course happening right now. So we're teaching young people how to manage their finances and to think about money differently. And then, you know, some of that teaching is about how we inherit our money mindset. 
Mm-hmm. I had a very conflicted money mindset because my parents had very different ideas about money. My mom, you know, grew up in an age in which if if you needed money, then you basically scrimp in other areas. You right. you spend Frugal. less in yeah you spend less in other areas in order to save money, and that's how like that that's a path of money for her. Whereas for my dad. He always was like, well, if you need more money, then you just figure out how to go make more money. He was never really concrete about how to make more money, but that was his mindset. So I teeter back and forth between those two things. There's been times in my life in which like, I wasn't making a ton of money. And so I cut out things that just weren't necessary. And I find some of them to be kind of strange that I cut out, but they somehow felt like, yeah, I'm going to save $2 here. I think we don't teach our young people enough about how the mindset is inherited and how therefore it can be changed, right? It's just a different behavior pattern that you need to learn. And uh, and we definitely don't teach them enough about building wealth from the beginning. And I know as an entrepreneur, and I know a lot of entrepreneurs are um, default to this particular position, which is that like we we personally underwrite the expenses for our endeavors. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. You know, you want to start a Don't business. Don't use your money to start your own business. <laughs> right. Like, I learned how much, the hard way too. How much money do I have? Right. And, um, and how much can I charge on my credit card to underwrite this venture? You know, will we have been better off investing in assets instead? Probably. So those are some of the things that I definitely didn't think about when I was younger. Charlie, you have excelled at everything that you have done even if it wasn't the three things that your parents hoped that you would do. I think that's, I interview a lot of immigrant kids of immigrants or kids who have like Asian parents, Middle Eastern parents and Indian parents. And it's like, if they didn't pursue the medicine or the law or, you know, investment banking, they went to Yale to study theater, you know, and (laughs) I went to Columbia to get a journalism degree. So just to give you a little what's happening on my end, you have to keep proving it to your parents. Okay, maybe you don't want me to be this person, but I'm going to be the best damn person on the planet in this category. And then you can tell all your friends and everybody will be happy about it. Yeah, I think my parents still don't understand what I do, but um, <laughs> but you know, I think they've also given up on those on are the that best too. jobs. When your parents don't know what you do, then they can't talk to you about it. It's all everybody's peaceful. Charlie Grasso, thank you so much. I really, um, especially the latter part of our conversation about, you know, how you've been thinking about your career all these years and your advice and your financial perspectives, so valuable. Best wishes to you. Thank you so much for for having me. Thanks so much to Charlie for joining us. Check out hellofuture.io to learn more about Hello Future and their program and, and ways you can get involved. You can also learn more about Charlie at charliegrosso.com. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Circle back here on Wednesday. We've got the budget nista Tiffany Aliche on to talk about her brand new book. I think it's already number one on Amazon entitled Get Good With Money, 10 Simple Steps to Becoming Financially Whole. Thanks for tuning in. I hope your day is so money. Money.